Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. And today we talk about 20-somethings. Articles, books, blogs, and other Internet postings are popping up to examine the issue. The New York Times even came up with a Letterman-like top 10 signs or a 20-something list to try and help define what seems to be a new and distinct life stage. Well, today we'll hear from Fordham theology professor Dr. Christine Fearer-Henze and theology student Paul Schutz about the relationship Catholic 20-somethings have with the church. But first, we explore a new developmental stage for 20-somethings. It's what author and Clark University professor Dr. Jeffrey Arnett calls emerging adulthood. Can you explain or define adulthood? Well, that's a tricky question and not a simple one. I think people used to define it by the roles that adults typically take, which is stable work and marriage and parenthood, also maybe finishing your education and leaving home. But now it's less those specific events and more a gradual transition. When I ask people about what it means to be an adult, at all ages they tend to make the same responses, and these are the top three. Accepting responsibility for yourself, making independent decisions, and becoming financially independent. So those are all gradual transitions rather than specific events. In terms of life milestones and responsibilities, can you describe a 20-something in, let's say, the 1920s, 1960s, compared with a 20-something today? Yeah, I think 1960 is a good watershed year to look at in comparison today, because it's about a half century ago. and. That was before the sexual revolution, before the feminist revolution, before the civil rights movement. A lot was different in 1960, including adulthood. At that time, the typical marriage age in the United States was 21. It was slightly lower for women than for men, as it is now. So it was about 20 for women and 22 for men. And people typically had their first child about a year later. And most people had three or four kids. Few women went to college, and those who did were mainly there to get their MRS, as people used to joke, <laughs> uh, find an misses. educated husband who would be a good provider. And most men uh, expected to be the sole provider of the family. So uh, another thing that's important about that time is that premarital sex was really taboo, and cohabitation was something that almost nobody did. So you compare that today to today, and we can see how vastly things have changed. I mean, premarital sex is still not exactly uh, totally acceptable in American society, but it's grudgingly accepted. And the fact is that most people begin an active sexual life in their late teens, a decade or more before they enter marriage. And women, of course, have entered universities in huge numbers and now are more likely to obtain a college degree than men are. And there have been many, many other changes, too, but the upshot of it is that now people stay in education longer. They spend most of their 20s uh, in education and then trying to find a place in the workplace. And they don't get married, typically, until they're around 27. It's now 26 for women and 28 for men. And most people don't plan to have three or four or five kids like my own parents did. They're happy with one or two, maybe three. And so they don't usually have their first child until sometime in their late 20s. Many people wait until their 30s. To me, if you put them all together, what you've really got is a new life stage. People used to go from adolescence to young adulthood around age 20. Now there's adolescence and then emerging adulthood, which is very much this in-between stage of uncertainty and 
meandering your way toward adulthood. And then you have young adulthood beginning about age 30. 30 is the new 20, as the popular phrase goes. Right. So, Dr. Arnett, is it fair to say that young people are taking longer to grow up? Well, there's no doubt about that, I think. Compared to 50 years ago, compared to any time in the past, really, people do take longer to grow up in the sense of entering the stable structure of an adult life. Can you explain your theory of emerging adulthood? Yeah, I've been studying people in their 20s for about 20 years. And when I first began studying them, I thought of them as maybe late adolescents and in some ways young adults. But the more I studied them, the more I concluded that they're really not like adolescents. I mean, I had been studying adolescents for years before that. And, of course, people in their 20s, you know, they're not in secondary school. They're not going through puberty. They're, by and large, not living with their parents. So they don't really fit very well as adolescents. But they don't really seem to be young adults either. They weren't doing the sort of things that we usually associate with adulthood, like stable work and marriage and parenthood and just a stable, consistent life. They were all over the place and changing around a lot and doing all sorts of interesting things. But they didn't really seem to resemble people in their teens or people in their 30s. So I proposed that what we really have is a new life stage of emerging adulthood in between adolescence and young adulthood. It's really distinct from either of those. It's much more unstable. It's a time of a lot of explorations. It's a, a time of really focusing on your own self-development before you, you commit yourself to others. And for them, it's very much a time of feeling like they're in between. One of the reasons I came up with the term emerging adulthood is that I asked them, do you feel like you've reached adulthood? And I was surprised to find that almost nobody gives a simply yes or no answer in their 20s. Most of them say, well, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Hmm. So they're emerging into adulthood, but they're not quite there yet. Dr. Arnett, if emerging adulthood becomes a new development stage, how could it affect our culture or society? Well, I think it already has come, uh, become a new development stage. I mean, I think, I think it's here whatever we decide to call it. I mean, I think emerging adulthood is a term that works, and I found a lot of other, pe other people embrace it too when they hear it because it makes sense. It seems to fit the world they see around them. So I think we're already adapting to the new reality that there's this new life stage in between adolescence and young adulthood. And I think we adapt to it by being more accepting of the fact that they are going to take most of their 20s to try out different things and get education, get good credentials, make their way into the workplace. They're going to very likely, most of them anyway, cohabit before marriage. So I think we're revising the timetables for when we expect them to enter a stable adult life. I think a lot of parents, for example, are quite tolerant when their emerging adults need to move home for a while as about 40% of them do sometime in their 20s. And the parents are tolerant of it because usually it's temporary and usually it's for a specific period and a sort of transitional period. So the emerging adult may have lost a job or had roommate problems or had a cohabiting relationship that didn't work out or have decided to go back to school. And parents are generally quite supportive and tolerant of that, as long as there is a plan with a capital P, and they're not planning to just move down in the basement and do nothing but play video games. So when is it 
that a parent is protecting and helping their child and or emerging adult and when is it be crossover into overprotection where they might not develop like they need to to be independent adults well that's a big question and a tough question in some ways but in general i would say the key is the question is there a plan so if the emerging adult is not engaged in anything and not working and not in school and not really trying to get anything going, then it's time to be concerned and maybe time to draw some lines in terms of how supportive you are. But that's pretty rare. I mean, in my experience, usually they're very keen to make their way into their life plan. And so they're trying the best they can in difficult conditions, especially now with the economy being the way it is. And parents when there is a plan, they, they want their children to do well. They want them to make a successful transition to adult life. So they're usually willing to provide financial support and maybe uh, the support of having them move back home for a while in order to help them make a successful transition. So you, do you think that parents um, need to prepare to take care of their children a lot longer as the years go on? I think that's true. I think it still does come as somewhat of a surprise to parents thinking of their own development, you know, 30, 40 years ago, and when they made these transitions, they're, they're a little surprised sometimes to find that their children are taking quite a lot longer. But as I said, they're, they're mostly quite supportive. Um, they're, they're not crazy about the financial drain that's lasting longer than they expected. But for the most part, they really like their kids. I mean, I find that when emerging adults leave home, the parents are kind of glad about it in a way because it gives them a lot of freedom themselves and allows them to turn their attention to their own lives again. But they really miss their kids. Um, if you're going through all these stages from you know infancy to adulthood, and you go through all these stages in the right order at the right time, ultimately what would be your, your social, your cultural goal? Well, I don't think there's necessarily any precise right time anymore. I think the whole life course is a lot more flexible than it used to be in terms of when people enter adulthood. I mean, again, to go back 50 years ago, if you weren't married by the time you were in your early 20s, you were really looked upon as maybe missing the boat. Right, like a especially spinster or something. Woman. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Especially if you're a woman, there was the dreaded specter of being an old maid. And now that really doesn't exist anymore. A lot of single people have very uh, satisfying lives, and we basically think people have a right to decide marry, to marry whenever they want or, or, or not if they decide they don't want to. And if you think of later in the lifespan, if you think of the way the 60s are now, for example, I mean, it used to be that you turned 65 and you got your gold watch and you moved to Florida and put on Bermuda shorts and sandals <laughs> and sat around waiting for the early bird buffet to open every day. But that's not the way it is at all now. I mean, some people still retire around the age of 60. A lot of people do. But they do all sorts of things after that. I mean, they, they may, in fact, work until they're in their 70s. Or they may take up some kind of volunteer work. They may really put a lot more time in on a hobby or some other interest that they've had for a long time. So 
So the whole life course, I think, is changing in a way that is much more flexible than it was 50 years ago. Dr. Arnett, does the emerging adulthood theory only work for 20-somethings in America? Because it seems extremely cultural-based. So is it something that can also work in other countries? Well, I think it definitely exists in other developing countries. I've spent a year in Denmark as a Fulbright scholar about five years ago, and I have a lot of European co colleagues, and I've done a lot of speaking in Europe, and I can tell you it very much exists there. If anything, it's even more developed and it's even longer in Europe than it is in the U.S. because they tend to take even longer in university, they tend to take longer to enter a stable job, and they marry and have their first child later. So it's definitely something that exists, I think, in all economically developed countries. How do you respond to critics who say in order to qualify as a developmental stage, emerging adulthood must be both universal and essential? Well, I just think that's an old-fashioned view of developmental stages. I mean, I don't think that's true, really, of most developmental stages. They all are culturally based in one way or another, even infancy and early childhood very vastly depending on where in the world you happen to be born. So, yeah, emerging adulthood is culturally based, but so is pretty much every other life stage. So how do you see emerging adulthood affecting us socially? Well, I think we're all getting used to it and starting to adapt our institutions to it. I think, for example, a lot of colleges and universities now are a lot more flexible in terms of how long it takes their students to graduate. So the four-year degree now often takes five or six years, partly because college has gotten more expensive and so young people are more likely to work while they're going to college. But it's partly, too, because people are using the college venue as a place for self-exploration and they're trying out different possibilities. And they're not in any real great hurry, most of them, to enter the workplace and get into a job that they're going to have for decades to come. They'd rather take a longer time to find something they really want to do. And in the legal arena, it's very interesting to see how the recent health care pill included a stipulation that allows parents to carry their children on their health plan until age 26. Right. That's a very definite that. recognition of the fact that during emerging adulthood, people still need assistance from their parents and that most of them don't have the sort of stable job at that age that also includes health insurance. And I think that's a very welcome adaptation for us as a society to the fact that this is very much an unstable and in-between life stage. Dr. Arnett, do you have children? Yes, I do. Are you preparing for their emerging adulthood? No, I'm, I'm enjoying every single day <laughs> of their 11-year-old's year and praying that they don't grow up too fast. Thank you very much, Dr. Arnett. You're welcome. That was Dr. Jeffrey Arnett discussing his theory of emerging adulthood. For more information, visit jeffreyarnett.com. Teach your children well. Their father's hell did slowly go by. And feed them on your dreams The one they fix The one you'll know by Don't This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Recently, Fordham University sponsored a conference called Lost, 
20-somethings in the church. Well, two people who helped put the conference together are here to talk about it and reflect on the relationship, and sometimes lack of one, between 20-somethings and the church. My name is Christine Fierhinze. I'm a professor of theology at Fordham, and I'm also the director of the Curran Center for American Catholic Studies here at Fordham. And my name is Paul Schutz, and I'm an MA student in systematic theology here at Fordham. I'd like to start with you, Paul. Are you a 20-something? I am. So how would you describe your generation? I think that our generation, my generation, is a generation that is very similar to other generations in that it's it's seeking real experiences and significant moments that, that shape it, but at the same time is really integrated and, and a part of a culture that is unlike any culture that has ever existed in history, especially because of the rise of technology, social media, these sorts of things, which are such an integral part of our lives. And so I think that we're shaped by that in a, in a particular way that, that relationships are different than they used to be. But at the same time, the real relationships that we're seeking are the same relationships that people have, have always sought. So there are some fundamental uh, similarities that mankind has. Definitely. But then growing up in this new environment, it creates both challenges um, and new opportunities. Would you say that? Absolutely. I think there are new opportunities for networking, for growing. But uh, at the same time, the challenges are, you know, defining what a relationship is. What does it mean to be a person in relationship with another person? You know, can that happen uh, via a computer or does that have to happen face to face? You know, those sorts of questions are, are new questions. I think that our generation in particular is wrestling with and trying to kind of figure out as we define who we are. What are some misconceptions other generations may have about people in their 20s? And I don't mean to yeah. make you speak for yeah. like everyone, everyone in your generation, yeah. but something that you might have experienced or heard of. Right. Or, okay. Well, you know? I mean, I guess one of the things maybe maybe that is before any particular thought that anybody has is this sort of idea that this 20-something generation is so different mm -hmm. and, and that that in itself is a, a presupposition and assumption that's out there, I think. And people think, what do these people need? What do these people want? And I think there's a degree where that gets into this maybe unhealthy separation that happens. Um, but at the same time, I think there are real needs um, that are there that the people are trying to recognize. So again, it's kind of a, a tension. Now, Christine, what was your involvement with the conference? The conference itself initiated from the Curran Center as the culmination of a several-year um, study project that we've been involved in, asking questions, among other things, and this was the relevant uh, topic for the conference, about generational issues in the church and in society. And so the idea was to ask questions about this particular generation with respect to its uh, fraught relationship, really, with the church. In some cases, very strong. In some cases, very weak. In some cases, not at all. And the notion of uh, using this moniker lost came up because in conversation, both with 20-somethings and with older people, um, the question that arose was, many times we do, older people do speak of younger people as lost or maybe lost or we're afraid we're losing them, but it can cut in a number of ways. In other words, to what extent is the church missing the boat or lost in its in its um, efforts to understand or to reach out to or to be, com be in community with younger people? And to what extent are young people themselves um, the ones who uh, need to lead the church out of being lost into some new directions as time goes on. So we saw it as working in a number of directions, this particular idea. Um, um, but I, you asked about misconceptions. I think even people who saw the title in some cases reacted by saying either 
two things which I think are misconceptions. Oh, yes, you're right, those young people, they're lost, you know. Got to come to this conference to figure out how to save them. Or young people who did come, and we had a good number of young people there as well, saying, wait a minute, we're not lost, you know. Um, even if we are, are traveling or seeking or looking around, um, that doesn't mean we're lost. So you were at this conference, and not only are you a 20-something, you were there in a professional capacity. Right. What did you hear while you were there from other 20-somethings? I heard um, a number of things, some very positive and also some, some criticisms, you know, that came out. Um, the f number one thing I think that we heard was just this wonderful air of positivity about the fact that this conversation is happening at all because people just want to be heard. Now, on the flip side of that coin is that there were not as many 20-somethings as many of us would have liked on the panels themselves. There were some. There were some. And I think that what they contributed was was absolutely wonderful. But one of the criticisms we heard was that there was not enough of the voice of the 20-somethings themselves present in in the conference. So, Christine, um, why not? Why weren't there more 20-somethings in the panel? Um, well, as as uh, the, the co-creator of this huge undertaking, um, the notion of imperfection is always at play, uh, whether it's a wedding or a conference and so forth. And so we always learn for next time. But I, I've been thinking about that, and I think it's partly the genesis of this particular conference. There's been a three-year study in the Curran Center about generational issues. And this particular conference, the Lost, and by the way, it's Lost Question Mark Conference. It's very important, the question mark. Uh, actually was a sort of a, a, a renovation of an earlier effort that had been planned a year ago. And the initial concept really was geared toward talking about 20-somethings. As we met with the Steinfelds... As opposed to talking to. Exactly, or yeah. with or listening, right? And so as over this from last summer till now, we met with the Steinfelds, we partnered with them, we talked to some 20-somethings, it became we became excited about a conference that would, yes, appeal to the people who work in these kinds of ministries, but also both include and invite and hopefully create conversation with actually 20-somethings. Um, however, I think in terms of our actual execution of that, what, you, what the outcome we got was was uh, very good in many ways, but it, it did it, it 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 bore the imprint of that earlier move. So we moved in a new direction, but not so completely that we would all be satisfied with it. Which suggests that something different that would actually be by about in four twenty somethings, you know, without all us old people necessarily taking the center stage, would be. Uh, perhaps a very good idea. So the idea was to gather this panel and then the 20-somethings would begin to discuss it among them, right. not necessarily among themselves, but begin the discussion and maybe a Q&A section would, would take care of the, right. the conversation we, part. We also made them. an effort to have t uh, younger 20-somethings uh, or close to 20-somethings respond to each of the panels. Uh, the other thing that happened that was a, a good conversation starter is that Paul Schutz, along with Jennifer Sawyer, two 20-somethings uh, with Fordham roots, went out on the street around Manhattan and did a man-on-the-street type of um, uh, interviewing uh, round uh, working well over several months you worked on this and we had a brief 10-minute video that had come out of that which was they basically went up to people and said are you a 20-something have you ever been connected to the Catholic Church um, what's one thing you love what's one thing you hate you know what keeps you coming what's pushed you away and they collected some really good you know very articulate comments across the spectrum so in the afternoon we started out um, our penultimate conversation by just listening to the voices of 20-somethings via this video so both 
through respondents as well as this video and hopefully through follow-up. But you're right. It was the beginning rather than the sort of completion of that kind of conversation. So, Paul, with this man on the street, what were some of the responses you got? We got a very wide variety of responses. Okay, let's start with, like, what were some of the the most challenging um, responses that you got? I think that the biggest challenges that people described had to do with uh, what are, by and large, a lot of the big issues sort of in the church right now. Um, One would be the uh, women's role in the church, particularly related to women's ordination. We heard a lot about homosexuality and um, the the church's stance on that. Uh, Marital life, uh, sexual issues came up, you know, uh, how the church stands on that. It's uh, the church's connection to political issues like abortion and and, uh, capital punishment and such things, uh, and how that's all kind of just in the climate. I would say those those sorts, especially the first two, are really the, the big things that we heard. Were they curious or were they condemning? I would say it's somewhere in between. I wouldn't say that they were curious. It wasn't like they were asking questions, you know, what does the church really think about this? But or why the same, does the church really why, think this particular why does the way? Church, although uh, one thing that we did hear as to the why from the questions was people saying, you know, well, nobody believes this. Nobody does this. Why doesn't the church sort of get on with us? You know, get down with the times is one of the phrases that one guy used in a in an interview. Why, do, why don't they do that? So that was a why question. But I would say nobody condemned it, but people just sort of said... This doesn't make any sense hmm. to us that the church still thinks this way when all of us have moved beyond this now. Uh, and, and that's what we heard, you know, so they weren't they weren't asking what or why they were just saying what they thought. Now, in regard to the cultural thing, what I thought was really interesting in the cultural scene was that a lot of what we heard was mediated through the culture. So we didn't hear necessarily people that were quoting, you know, church teaching or doctrine or even that had this full understanding, but what they heard was in some way kind of mediated by the larger culture. So it was almost like people who are or have been Catholics kind of speaking secondhand or on secondhand information about kind of what's out there in the air, you know, more so than than really getting down into the nitty gritty of, of what the things say. So it's a very kind of complex um, set of issues that, that make it up. So, and this is for either Christine or Paul, do you find that this is one of the biggest challenges, the secondhand information, that people aren't actually saying, I have this question, let me go seek it out, mm-hmm. that it's more, well... I have this idea in my head. I don't remember where I got the idea. I don't know how I got the I don't know who told me this idea. It's just a belief that I have. And then maybe if you question them a little bit more, well, where did this belief come from? They can't really pinpoint it. Do you find that? I think you're articulating something that's very true just in our culture today, whether it's politics, religion, um, what have you. And, and it's a it's thought-provoking the way you phrased it, I think. Um, and it does bring up an issue that threaded its way through the conference, and that has to do with education. Um, what does it mean to be a community that really um, offers um, good education, how does that happen? Uh, one of the things we encourage people to do is to write comments and questions. We had boxes around the, cause we, because there was not enough time for the Q&A ever. And, and many people wrote, um, well, um, you know, many 20-somethings I know, or I'm a 20-something, and I got very little education about the whys or the background or the richness of the tradition. And so now here I am, I'm a 20-something, or now I'm teaching 20-somethings, or I'm a parent, and I see this big gap in actual substantial uh, education or knowledge. On the other hand, 
this raises the question of how do you attractively invite or draw people to do what you suggested, which is to, I'm going to go find out that. Um, what could a conference like this offer to 20-ish people who might be Muslim or atheists? Well, I think that it gives them maybe a little bit of perspective on where the discussion is. Um, I don't think that there was any, you know, goal or thought that we were going to convert anybody or, you know, anything by this conference. It was really a conference that sought to, to address the issues in the church related to this age group. Now, I think it could be really informational and really eye-opening maybe in some ways to hear um, what the church is really about and, and how it works and what these people think and those sorts of things that, that the church is maybe not what you always thought it was from the outside as as a Muslim and atheist, any any tradition. Uh, so it's eye-opening in that way. Um, but, you know, I don't think it is going to make everybody, anybody want to jump in a baptismal font, you know, necessarily. <laughs> so My thanks to Dr. Christine Fearer-Henze and theology student Paul Schutz. For more information about the 20-something in the church conference, visit fordham.edu slash lost. And once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Jeffrey Arnett. His book, Emerging Adulthood, The Winding Road from the Late Teens Through the Twenties, is out now. He's also working on a new guide for parents of 20-somethings due out in 2012. Stay tuned right here for Cityscape with George Bodarkey. I'm Robin Shannon for Fordham Conversations. Please join the community of WFUV members creating great radio with their financial support. Our members contribute most of WFUV's funding. Your tax-deductible contribution will help pay for music, news, and information you rely on from WFUV. Be part of the community of listeners who support this non-commercial public radio station. Join today or renew your membership at WFUV.org.